Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's good to see you on this Labor Day weekend this morning. Find Psalm number 73 in your copy of God's Word on your Bible app. Psalm number 73. You know, as we're tackling our journey through the Psalms now to the end of the year, we're looking at the Psalms in groupings to help us see themes together. And we're in the middle of our second week of what we call the Lament Psalms. Lament is a word that simply means sorrow. These are psalms to where the author is expressing sorrow because of the hardships of life, where the author is wrestling with brokenness of the world, sufferings and trials in their life. We introduced these way at the beginning of our series in Psalms with Psalm 3, and if you remember to that one, we saw that God never promised that life would be easy, but he promised to give us his peace. So we're now focusing more in on those lament psalms. Last week, Preston showed us from Psalm 42, what we do when we lament, when we're sorrowful over our own spiritual dryness and how God, even in his sovereignty and his bigness, uses that spiritual dryness to take us to places of deeper communion with him, a deeper relationship. Today we come to Psalm 73. It's also a lament psalm, a psalm of sorrow, but this one's different. This is dealing with the sorrow, the lamenting, when life does not seem fair, when life does not make sense to us. The author of Psalm 73 wrestles with the thought of why those who follow God often suffer, when it seems like those who reject God often have such lives of ease. Why do God's people have such hard times when those who've rejected God seem to have such easy lives? He basically is going to ask this question I want you to see, though he doesn't use it in these words. This is the, the question he raises. Is God good to us even when life is hard? Is God still good to us even when life is hard? It's a question you probably have wrestled with because we all have walked through different seasons and times of trials in our life. Whether it's loss, whether it's sickness, whether it's life not making sense, some disappointment. Is God still good to us even when life is hard and we're in the middle of the fire, the middle of the sufferings, the middle of the trials? Friends, one reason why I love the Psalms so much is because the authors are honest with God about their emotions. There's no pretense, no hiding. The authors are just very real about their struggles, but they're also very real about how they find hope in the midst of their struggles. Today we come to a psalm where the author is really struggling here. This psalm, if you see the very beginning of your psalm, before verse 1, it says a psalm of Asaph. Asaph here is the guy who wrote 11 of the 150 psalms. Who is Asaph? Who is the guy struggling we'll see today? Asaph was one of three chief musicians for King David. David had three musicians who led worship in different places. Asaph was one of those. In fact, his role was so important. If you go back to the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant got brought to Jerusalem, he was the one who oversaw the music. He was the one who led the choir in Jerusalem when the Ark arrived. This is a man who day by day led the people of God in the worship of God. He was, if you will, the worship leader for the people in Jerusalem and the worship leader for King David. Yet he was a man who had doubts and struggles in his life. As we read Psalm 73 today, you're going to see his honest wrestling. You're going to see him wrestling with the goodness of God. Is God good when my life is hard? You're going to see him not just wrestle, you're going to see him falter in his beliefs there. You're going to see him really struggling to keep the right perspective in the trials. And praise God, he's honest about it. And I pray that may help some of you who may be struggling with similar questions and doubts as well. But you're also going to see him being very honest about how he regained the right perspective. So as we read Psalm 73 today, I want you to be looking for not just Asaph's struggle, but what caused him to change. What is it that made a difference that took him from doubt to belief, that took him from a place of questioning, is God good, to affirming that God is good? What changes him so he knows that God is in fact good even when life is hard? So I ask you to stand, please, as we read all of Psalm 73. 
have the words for you on the screen if you'd like to follow there. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they were destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is a strength in my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your living word this living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you for your word that shows us who you are, that shows us who we are. And God, today, as we look at another psalm of sorrow, of lament, God, I pray this would be a comfort and a hope for those today who are here who are struggling. Lord, I pray today it would be an encouragement to all of us to see your goodness, that, Lord, by the end of today, that we would know for certain, regardless of whatever we're walking through, a good day or a bad day, that you're still sovereign, you're still in your throne, and you are still so good to us, your children. So would you anchor us, your people, today through your word and your Holy Spirit, applying your word to have a greater grasp of your goodness to us, your children. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So back to my question. Is God good to us when life is hard? In the American culture, people are really confused by this. Because so many people in American churches have equated God's goodness with the achieving of the American dream. We somehow assume that the goodness of God means that we get an easy, prosperous, healthy, happy life. But friends, whether or not we achieve the American dream is not the standard Scripture holds up for the goodness of God. It's the wrong evaluation of God's goodness. But friends, that's not just an American problem. That is crosses cultures and crosses times. Here's Asaph more than 2,000 years ago who was being tempted to evaluate the goodness of God and whether or not he had ease, health, prosperity, and all of those type things. I want you to see his struggle, whether or not he thinks God really is good. Go back to verse 1 here. 
He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, it may seem like he's got the answer right from the beginning, but what Asaph is doing here is he's saying, this is what I profess to believe. Truly, this is the confession that Israel makes. This is the confession of God's people, that we as God's people say that God is good to us. He says he's referring to those who are pure in heart. doesn't mean perfection there. He means to those people whose hearts want to follow God. He's saying God's people whose hearts follow God, they confess that God is good. But but realize something here, friends. His confession, this is what I believe, this is what I say I believe, doesn't mean he doesn't struggle. Just because we can articulate the right answer doesn't mean there's never a doubt or a struggle in our mind. In fact, he goes straight from his public confession of what they would agree to believe to his own struggle. Look at verse 2. But, as for me, okay, I'm confessing God is good, but for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's using imagery here of slipping and falling to use what we might might today's language call a crisis of faith. His life is not making sense like he wants. He's in a crisis of faith. He knows the right answer. God is good, but he's struggling himself. And why is he struggling? Verse 3, 4, because I was envious of the arrogant. He's struggling, though he knows the right answer, because of envy in his heart, because of the sin of envy. What is envy? Envy is discontentment. Envy is longing for something that we don't have that someone else has. It doesn't have to be material things. It can be envy of circumstances, even envy of places in life. And Asaph had envy in his heart. And what was he envying? Look at verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked being his term for those who have rejected God, who are not part of God's people. Asaph, the worship leader for the king, is struggling here. He knows the right answer, but he's become envious in his heart of the prosperity, the ease of those who have rejected God. Don't miss what's happening here. He looks at his life. He looks at the lives of those around him, and he concludes that they have more ease, they have more wealth, they have more prosperity than he has. Unfortunately, our English translations don't really do justice to it because the word that we read, prosperity, is the Hebrew word shalom, peace. Again, don't miss this. The worship leader of Israel is saying, I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at the non-believers out there and the non-believers look like they have more shalom, they have more peace, more wholeness than I have. He's saying, what's wrong here? I follow God and I'm struggling. And these people who don't even believe in God have shalom, have peace. And so he begins down this path of his stumbling, and it all culminates in verse 12, where we see his, where his perspective is going because of the sinfulness of the envy in his heart. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. His envy has grown so much, he looks at those who've rejected God, and he wants the life that they have. In fact, this crisis of faith gets so real here. Look at what he says in verse 13. Again, remembering that he is the worship leader in Jerusalem. He says, it's all in vain. Meaning, it is pointless have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. It is pointless, he's saying, that I've been following God. Look, they have so much more than I have. I, I want what they have. I'm following God and it's pointless here. And then verse 14, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. We don't know what Asaph's trial was. We don't know what he was struggling with at this point, but he was struggling with something to where in the sinfulness of his heart, he began to envy the shalom, the apparent peace that seemed like others had. Have you ever felt that way? He's asking, is God good to me when life is hard? 
And friends, his natural response, apart from the grace of God, his fleshly response, when he hears the question, is God good when life is hard, is to go, nope, he's not. I'm not getting what I deserve. Life is not working the way I want it to. Where is God in all this? And he begins to question. Now, lest we think, oh, poor Asaph, I can't believe he's so weak in his faith. Friends, we're really prone to this also, aren't we? Look at verse 10. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now, there's one older translation that translates this, therefore, their people turn back to them. That's, that's not the best translation. The Hebrew here is, therefore, his, God's people. What's it saying? God's people can look upon the wicked, can begin to envy what people outside the faith have, and can very quickly find no fault with them and turn to them. It's a warning that God's people, in any time, in any age here, like Asaph, can quickly find ourselves with envy in our heart unchecked, running after what the world offers. We can just as easily turn away. Apart from the grace of God, you and I can begin to envy the world. Apart from the grace of God, we can begin to long for what others have. And apart from the grace of God, we can listen to the lies of the world. Look at verse 11. And they, the lost, the wicked, say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And before long, if we're not careful, we can easily start running down that same path like Asaph and end up in a crisis of faith as well. But God has, gives grace to his people. He doesn't leave us in this place. And Asaph begins to realize what's happening here. And he begins to have a turning point here. And the turning point begins, you see a glimpse in verse 15 here. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus. And I'll just stop there. He says, if. This is a big if here. Because everything Asaph's recording for us after the fact happened in his heart. He wasn't publicly sharing all these doubts and concerns about the goodness of God. He said, but if I had, if I had opened my mouth and spoken thus. What's the thus? Verses 13 and 14, the vanity he felt like his life was in pursuing God. He's, he's saying, if I had publicly expressed these things, what would have happened here? Well, look at verse 15. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That's a strong word. He says, if I had opened my mouth and expressed what was happening in my heart, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What is betrayal? It's when you help the enemy. He's saying, if I had vocalized this sinful envy in my heart that was unchecked, these doubts about God's goodness I had, if I had expressed that to the whole congregation, I would have betrayed them. I would have been giving a foothold for the enemy in their lives of leading others to places that might compromise their faith. He begins to take his eyes off of himself and start realizing what's happening. So what does he do when he realizes he's on the wrong path? Well, think back to Ephesians. We looked at Ephesians. We looked at how we, by God's grace, fight sin in our life. We said we put off something and we replace it. We put on something else. He doesn't quite use that language, but the context here, he puts off something. He replaces something with something else in his life. Look at what he puts off as he begins to realize the error of this, this, this path he's on here. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. What does Asaph put off? He puts off self-reliance. Up until this point, he's tried to figure out the injustices of life on his own. He's tried to use his human reason and his human reason alone to explain life and make sense of life and to explain why things were happening the way they were. He's been relying on himself and been very self-focused in the process. And in the grace of God, he puts off that self-reliance. But he doesn't stop there. He puts on something else in its place. And look at what it is. Look at verses 16 and 17 together. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. So he puts off self-reliance, and what does he put on instead? He puts on seeking God. He puts on seeking God's presence in this. And notice how he describes it. He says he went into the sanctuary 
of God. He went to the holy place where God's people gathered. Now, don't miss that. He went to the public place of gathering. He didn't retreat to a solitary place and spend days and days and weeks in meditation trying to solve this. He ran back to the corporate assembly of God's people where God's praises were sung, where God's word was taught. He ran back to Christian community, to the place to where people would gather together. And when he goes to God in a very public way here, he's very honest about his doubts. He's very honest about his questions. He's very honest about his sin. But notice something here. He doesn't demand answers of God. He doesn't demand that God conform to him. He doesn't go in with pride. As he runs to God here, he's honest about his struggles, but he goes to God simply to be with God, simply to be in God's presence. And when Asaph runs to God's presence, everything begins to change. I want you to see four things that change in Asaph's life here when he goes into God's presence. Number one, when he goes into God's presence, his envy goes away. That sinful envy in his heart just vanishes. He gets obliterated here when he gets into the presence of God. Of God. Look at what happens here. Look at verses 17 through 20. It says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. How does his envy go away, friends? As he runs in the presence of God, he sees God, not for who he wants God to be. He sees God for who God really is. When you're really in the presence of God and meet with God, all of our imagination of what we want God to conform to or be like, go away. When we see God for who he is, it changes us. And he sees God for who he really is. He sees all of God's attributes. And one of the attributes of God he sees is the one that we in our culture run from the most. He sees the justice of God. What is the justice of God? The justice of God is that God's holiness requires him to punish sin. And because God is holy, he must and he certainly will always punish sin. Our culture doesn't like to talk about the justice or the wrath of God. But when Asaph gets in God's presence, he remembers this very good part of God's character, the justice of God. And the people he's been envying, he realizes, though they may appear to have shalom now, they don't really have shalom because they're going to stand before a holy God one day, give an account of their life, and they will face the judgment and the wrath of God. And friends, it breaks him. Because you cannot envy someone you know is headed towards judgment. You cannot envy someone whose life you know is destined for eternal condemnation because they have offended a holy God and they have come face to face with him at the judgment seat and have been condemned. It kills his envy here when he thinks about who God is and he sees the justice of God. His envy goes away. But not only does envy go away, when the presence of God, not just he sees his sin and it vanishes there, he confesses his sin, number two. When he's in the presence of God, number two, he confesses his sin. Look at verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. Friends, he's confessing here. Confessing sin means you acknowledge your sin to God. You talk to God about your sin. God already knows your sin. You're not giving God new information. God's not in heaven being like, whoa, I didn't know you were struggling with that. Thanks for telling me. God knows everything. Confession of sin is us seeking to be restored to a right relationship with him. And so Asaph runs to God and tells God what God already knows. Not only that he was envious, look at verse 21. He says, my soul was embittered. Friends, Asaph, the worship leader, had so envied what other people had. Not only did he envy, it had turned to bitterness in his heart. The worship leader of Israel was bitter. And he realizes now the sin of that. And he runs to God and he sees God for who he is. He sees the justice of God. He's broken under the weight of that and for his own sin. And he cries out to the Lord, I was bitter towards you. And in verse 22, he goes to poetic expression of, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast 
towards you. It's just a poetic way of saying, God, I am so wrong for how I treat you. God, my envy, my bitterness was so very wrong. He was just describing an imagery here of his confession. So as Asaph meets with God, his envy goes away when he thinks about God's character. He confesses his sin. But number three, look at this. He focuses on God's presence. He focuses on God's very real presence with him. Verse 23 is absolutely stunning. This is some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, what follows right here. Asaph says this, Nevertheless, nevertheless what? Even though I had wandered, even though I was bitter towards you, God, even though I was envious about other people, nevertheless, in spite of my sin, my rebellion, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And this is stunning. His sin had not kept God away from God is always with us. And he can still proclaim here that God has been then and has always been with him. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And friends, we've seen it over and over in the Gospel of John. We've seen it in the book of Ephesians. When we talk about God's presence with us, that's not some passive thing. God's not just back off in distance saying, I'm going to be with you, now go figure that out. God's presence is very much involved in the lives of his children. In fact, Asaph describes that when he thinks about God being with him, it's not him figuring things out with God just looking over his shoulder. God is there involved in his life and always has been. Look at verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continuing with you. Now, here's what comes. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Notice who does all the action here. God does. You do this. You do this. You do this. God's presence is so very active. It's interesting here because the way this was written in the Hebrew, we lose a little bit in the English. He uses a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. It all kind of gets blurred in our English here. It begins at the verse 23 here with a past tense. You, it really should read, you have held my right hand. Why would that be past tense? Because once God grabs us, he never lets go. Asaph is pointing back to that time when he first believed in God and God grabbed to hold him and you have held me. And once God holds us, friends, he never loses his grip. And as it says in John, nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Asaph past tense has been held by God. That's obviously still carrying forward, but it's more active than that. Verse 24 here, you guide me with your counsel. This is now the present tense verb. God is currently today guiding us with his counsel. He uses his word as his Holy Spirit illumines it and applies it to our life, that he is daily guiding us through his Holy Spirit and through his word. He is daily guiding us. He's held us, past tense. He's present tense, guiding us. And then verse 24, future tense still. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory, that he will certainly get us to heaven. He certainly will get us to glory, to the time when there is no sin, no more doubt, no more struggles, no more sins, no more hardships. He will get us to that place. So as Asaph meets with God, his envy is dried up when he sees the character of God. He confesses his sin, receives forgiveness here. Number three, he focuses on God's presence with him, which changes him. And number four, I want you to see what happens when he gets into God's presence. He worships God. He cannot contain himself in the thought of all that he has now realized and seen. And he just exclaims, look at verse 25. This is... I hope you can catch the wonder of what Asaph is proclaiming. I almost picture Asaph shouting here with hands up, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. Do you notice the 180 degree change that's just happened? 24 verses earlier, Asaph is going, Okay, yeah, I say I believe God is good to Israel, but for me, I have trouble believing it. 24 verses earlier, he is in doubt. He is struggling. 24 verses earlier, he's envying the wicked. 24 verses earlier, he's bitter to his God. 
And now, 24 verses later, he's saying, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? There's, what's the next word? There's how much on earth I desire? There's how much? Oh, this is big here. He just said, I was envying the world. I was bitter because God didn't give me all the things these other people have. Now he's saying, I want none of that, God. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that I desire besides you. He's now declaring not just the supremacy of God. He's declaring not just his delight in God, but he's declaring that God is sufficient and that God is all he needs. Look at verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart, it's a picture of the totality of his being, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Remember, we saw this piece of portion means contentment, what we've been given, being satisfied with what we've been given. God is my complete contentment for Ever. He's declaring that God is sufficient. This is huge. He no longer wants the prosperity. He no longer wants the ease. He no longer wants the, the fatness of the world. He doesn't want all those things anymore. Why? Because he's seeing God for God. And when his vision gets refocused on who God is, he realizes all he needs is God's presence. That is all he needs for this life. Now, with that in mind of his journey, let's go back to our first question. Is God good even when life is hard? And the answer is yes, because of this. I want to give you what I think is the main idea of this psalm. How do we know God is good to us? Because of this. God's goodness is seen in his presence with us regardless of our circumstances. God's goodness is seen in the fact he's given us his presence with us regardless of our circumstances. We're so tempted to look at things so short-sighted. We are so tempted to evaluate our lives and whether or not we've achieved that job, gotten that car, gotten that house, gotten those material things, gotten that relationship, that trial go away, that suffering go away, that pain go away. We're so quick to want to evaluate whether or not God is good based on whether we've gotten these temporal things that we want. But Asaph had his perspective changed in the presence of God to where he realizes that God's goodness is there quite simply because God is there. And that is enough for him. And his circumstances did not dictate whether or not God was good. God was good, period, because God was with him, regardless of whether it was an easy day or a hard day, a time of blessing or a time of trial. God was good because God was with him. This is incredible. Asaph is realizing that we don't deserve the presence of God. We don't deserve the goodness of God. All of us are what we saw earlier in Psalm 73, verse 19. All of us should be destroyed in a moment. All of us should be swept away by terrors. Why? Because all of us have offended God. Every single one of us have sinned against God. Every single one of us, like Asaph, have been bitter towards God. Every single one of us have had envy in our hearts. Every single one of us have had a multitude of sins in our life. As we shake our fist at God and say, I want my way, God. All of us deserve judgment. All of us to be swept away as by terrors, like he describes here. And instead, God forgives us. He cleanses us. He frees us from those sin strongholds in our life. And he invites us, like we saw last week, he invites us to commune with him. He invites us to be very close to him. He invites us to be at a place to where he leads us, he guides us, he holds our right hand where we will be in glory one day. He takes us, his enemies, makes us his children, as we sing so often, once his enemies, now we're seated at his table. We have the goodness of God regardless of our circumstances, friend. Our circumstances are temporal. This is not our forever home. We're forever going to be with God. That means those things that we often use to evaluate our lives, success, money, fame, friends, whatever else, approval of others, 
those are all going to fade very quickly. A hundred years from now, not one of us in this room will still have those things that we often are evaluating that our life is good based on those. That also means whatever trial, hardship, suffering you're in right now won't be around a hundred years from now either. There'll be a blip in the scope of eternity that if we're in Christ, we will forever be with God. And this taste of his presence now is just a glimpse of what will be so much greater when we see him with unveiled faces and we see him for him. And we'll look back and realize how God even used the hardships and sufferings of this life to bring us to a deeper communion with him. I love how the author of Hebrews describes it for us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. To me, it's like a one-verse summary of all of Psalm 73. He gives us a warning. Keep your life free from the love of money. And I think we could insert there anything else our hearts long for in this world. Money, success, fame, whatever else. Keep your life free from those things and be content with what you have. Why? Why can we be content even if other people have more than us? Because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. That'll be another discussion for another day. But whoever wrote Hebrews got Psalm 73 here. That what we need is not all those temporal things our hearts run to. What we need is God's presence with us. That, friends, is our ultimate good. That God in his faithfulness has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Friends, Psalm 73 began really with a question of the psalmist of Asaph saying, is God really good when my life is hard today? And he ends with this incredible declaration of confidence. Go back to verse 28 of Psalm 73. And think of where he's come from questioning in verse 1 to where he is now in the last verse. But for me, he's saying, I got it now. Okay, God's brought me through in his grace. I'm now I'm confident. This is not just what the people of God believe. This is what I believe. But for me, it is, what's the next word? It is good. He's saying, I found the goodness. Is my life good? Yeah, my life is good. No, I don't have what the world has. They, some of them seem to have more shalom than I have. Some of them seem to have more money than I have. Some of them seem to have more all the stuff than I have. But that doesn't matter. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He now has found confidence. Though his circ- nothing in his circumstances has changed. All that has changed is he has met with God. In the presence of God, his perspective is corrected. He repents of his sins, and he realizes that God's goodness is all that he needs. God's presence is all that he needs, and therefore God is good. So friends, I want to ask you this morning, what are you and I looking to to evaluate whether or not we have a good life? What is the standard that we are using? Are we evaluating the goodness of God and the goodness of our life based on a lack of trials, a lack of sadness, a lack of loss, a lack of whatever. Are we evaluating in terms of, well, I've gained money, I've gained fame, I've gained success. Are we looking to those things to see whether our life is good? Or is our standard, the goodness of my life is that God took me an enemy who deserved terror and he gave me mercy. Is our standard of God's goodness anything more than his presence? I also want to ask us, though, with that, are we longing for his presence? It's so easy for us to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I want God. Friends, are we opening his revealed word to us, longing to hear him speak? Are we talking to him because we know that he wants a relationship with us? Are we gathered with with other believers with expectancy in our heart because we want the presence of God in our lives? Friends, what's our standard? Are we longing for his presence? The last thing I want to ask, can we say with confidence, verse 28, Can you and I declare with confidence, as for me, it is good to be near God. 
Friends, I can't make that in my own heart. And you can't make that in your own heart. Our hearts left unchecked do what Asaph did. We want something else besides God. We want to be self-reliant and make sense of life. We want whatever things we've come up with we want. But that's the beauty of grace. God gave Asaph grace to take him from envy and bitterness to a place of saying it's good to be near God. And wherever we are today, friends, God and his grace can take us to a place as well where we can say with confidence, it is good to be near God. And so I'm so excited that Alex led us in the song earlier, Give Me Faith. We sang this and hope this is our prayer. Give me faith to trust what you say, that you are good and your love is great. Don't miss how we sing that. The words are so intentional in that song. Give me faith, because we can't manufacture. Give me faith to do what? To trust what you say, that you are good. Friends, the only way when life is hard and we're struggling in the brokenness and the fallenness of this world that we can say life is good is because God has given us faith and we have his presence with us. God's goodness is seen in his presence regardless of our circumstance. And I pray for myself and for you this week, whether it's an easy week or a hard week, that you will anchor yourself in the nearness and the presence of God, and that will be your anchor through whatever you face. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you do not leave us where our hearts would go on our own. God, that you love us so much, you don't leave us lost in our sin. Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace. It's so evident all throughout the Psalm 73 of Asaph. To think that this worship leader of Israel had envy and bitterness. But you loved him so much, you pursued him and brought him to a place of brokenness. You so revealed yourself and your character to him that he was transformed in just a moment here <coughs> from his selfishness and self-reliance to a place of worship and concern for you and for others. But we're thankful for that same grace that pursues us. The God, that you love us so much, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. God, you love us so much. You took us, your enemies who deserve wrath, and you've given us mercy and grace. And Lord, for all those here today who know you, who've experienced your presence, who have seen you for who you are, who've believed in you, who are now seated at your table, Lord, would you, in their lives and in my life today and this week, give us a deeper sense of all of what you've done. And we confess it's so easy to lose sight of the wonder of grace. You took undeserving sinners like us and made us your children. You took undeserving sinners, and not just made us your children, but given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that you are holding us and that you will guide us with your counsel and you will receive us to glory. And Lord, we ask for much grace this week, Lord, because there's a world around us pulling on us that wants us to be discontent with what we have, that wants us to envy others' lives, that wants us to always be looking for something else. Lord, we all know that our hearts are so prone to wander after those things. God, would you give us much grace and bind our hearts so close to you this week, Lord, that the only thing we see that we need is you. You'll be our complete, complete contentment, our portion, our satisfaction this week. Because we know we're in that place, Lord, you will get all the glory. Lord, we will get all the joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, would you stand as we sing our closing song, as we sing about the goodness of God, that God is a good, good Father. And I pray that these words will be your declaration like the psalmist here in verse 28. As for me, it is good to be near God. Let's sing of the goodness of our God.